how God's mercy and justice relate. Meaning that if, if God's just and he's got to punish sin, then how, then how can he forgive it? And so what they did is they dragged out this woman that they just caught in adultery. And they threw her there. They had rocks in their hands. And they said, Moses says, Stoner, what do you say? And so they thought that they had him. And so if Jesus would say, yeah, yeah, go ahead and stone her. Then they would have fired rocks at her head. And then the Romans, no doubt, would have come and arrested him. He would have been responsible for her death. Everybody that would have been following him at this point in time would have walked away because he was kind of supposed to be about love and forgiveness, right? So on the other hand, if he said, don't stone her, then they would have said, gotcha. You can't be the Christ. You can't be the Messiah if you go against what Moses says. So this is what they thought they had him in a trap. They thought they had him. And so what did he do? Well, he said, he who is without sin, right, cast the first stone. And so they're just devastated once again. You know, and he's looking down at the woman. And he's like, so where are your accusers? He says, neither do I condemn you, so go and sin no more, right? So this is what just happened. So he turned it around on them. So these guys crept away, walked away, devastated again. And so they've got to figure out another attack, guys. Initially, they, they tried to arrest him. That didn't work. The people that they sent to go arrest him, they came back and they're like, we've never heard anybody talk like this before. And so there's no way they can take him by force. So arresting him is not a question. So then they try to trap him in his words. We just saw that. That failed. They go away. They walk away condemned. And so now they're coming basically in a third attack. And so that kind of sets the stage to where we're at right now, guys. And so this kind of paints the scene. So when we look at verse 12, and when he says what he says, I am the light of the world. Where are we at? Verse 20. Look over real quick to verse 20. It says, these words Jesus spoke. So it's this whole, this whole passage. It says, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Okay, so this is where he's at. Jesus is in the temple. He's in the temple. That's where the, the treasury was, guys. You remember the temple. You know the temple. I mean, this massive building, right? I mean, all the way on one side is the Holy of Holies. All the way on the other in these giant big courtrooms with these open ceilings and open colonnades and separating walls. All the way was the, the court of the Gentiles where, well, I would imagine all of us would be. That's about as all further we could go in. The next court in would be the, the court of the women. And that's where they... Well, the further that they can kind of go. Unless they were bringing in a sacrifice, they go to the court of the priests. And so it's in this place, in the court of the women, guys, where this treasury was. And there's, a, there's an amazing study that kind of attached to it as far as these, I think there was 13. So there's like 13 trumpet-style xylophone funnel things off the walls that you would put your offering in. Right? It was where they would bring our offerings to God. This is the treasury. And so each different one had different significance, right? So you think about it. This is where Jesus is at, where the offerings are given to God. Well, who hangs out there? Well, devout people. I mean, we know from our passage, if we go verse by verse, we're going to extract just verse 12, but verse by verse, the Pharisees, no doubt, are there. The scribes are there. Devout people hang out there. The, I mean, if you're going to People that are serious about God are going to be in there. People that are not serious about God, they're not going to want to hang out where offerings given to God because, I mean, they don't want that kind of guilt trip, right? So it, it's, it's the serious people that are there. And so you guys, 
their minds, I mean, their ears had to absolutely pierce when they heard him say what he said in verse 12. I am that light. Because these are the guys, they've got the Old Testament memorized. They've got it all down in their heads. He had to have blown their minds when he said what he said. Because two times in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 42 and 49, God said, I'm going to send a light to the nations. Two huge messianic prophecies that basically said what Jesus is saying, I'm the light. He's saying, I am your Messiah. He says, I am that light. He is that S-U-N, that son of righteousness that, that Malachi talked about that's just going to beam forth. He is the light. <laughs> they knew he was coming. He knew the Christ is coming. They knew he'd be called light. Because they knew that the Messiah was going to be everything that this world is not. This world is darkness. This world is darkness. He is light. But even more, guys, track this with me. Back in, in, in John 7.37, it says... Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes on me, as the scripture states, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Guys, he didn't just walk up to some group and say, hey, if any man thirsts. No, that's not what happened. He literally is doing that at the split second during the Feast of Tabernacles, where they're, they're having this ritual that they did, where this commemoration to where Moses struck the rock and back in the wilderness and the water came out. He walks in literally at the split second that they're doing that ritual during the Feast of Tabernacles when they had that ceremony to commemorate when Moses struck that rock and the water came out. He says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. So it's right then he does that. So amazing, so dynamic. Guys, so follow this with me. The Feast of Tabernacles, which basically ends right here where we're at in verse 12. Guys, this... This year-long, this this every year thing that they had, it was seven days long. It was a it was a commemoration feast, is what it was, and it lasted seven days, and it was to to commemorate Israel's wandering in the in the wilderness for forty years, and uh, it was to to cause remembrance for to bring back that. Their forefathers that did, that were guided by God and loved by God and so blessed by God, and they followed Him in the wilderness for 40 years, that an entire time, guys. And so during this feast, guys, they had several little rituals. One we just saw is Moses striking the rock. It's exactly what Jesus did back in John 7, right? So the second ritual, that they, another ritual that they did that happened in the evening was called the illumination of the temple lights. Illumination of the temple lights, guys, and it was it was to commemorate how God was that light. In the wilderness, back in, in, in Exodus 13, where he was, he was in that cloud that guided him by day. And he was in that pillar of fire that guided him by night. And so the ceremony was to, to commemorate that. How Jehovah God had did that and led them everywhere that they needed to go for 40 years. Guys, this ritual was, was amazing. And so guys, get this. Remember, guess where they had that ritual? This illumination of the temple lights in the court of the women. That's why Jesus was there. Guys, what they would do is they would erect these gigantic candelabras with this multiplicity of light that all just shone up. And what they would do in the evening, they would get it all lit, and the, and the light would just pour out of that place and open ceilings and just flood out of the temple and into the, 
straight to Jerusalem. I was reading about rabbis where they would talk about it was just like this brilliant diamond just bursting out of the temple and you could see it for miles. And they have that thing lit up all night long. So guys, get this. Jesus walks into the court of the women, into this treasury. The lights are long out because the feast ended the day before. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're there. No doubt reminiscing about how brilliant that light was. And all of a sudden the sky that Isaiah 53 says doesn't look like anything special walks into that place and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Amazing thing, guys. And what he says there, he says, he says something interesting there. He says, he who follows me. What does that mean? Guys, what does that mean? I, I love God 100%. Am I following him? Is that what I'm doing? I mean, is that what you're doing? Is that what's happening in your life? Is that what people see you do in your life? Is that what God sees you do in your life? Is is when he says, follow me, does that affect your life? Is my following Jesus affect my choices, my priorities, my time? Guys, too many, too many Christians, too many men in this room. It absolutely, the answer is no. It's just plain no. It's not affecting your choices and your priorities and your time. We are flat out making choices and having priorities and wasting time no different than the rest of the world. And so it, it affects our witness, guys. It affects our witness. The world is going to, they're going to see what you say and then see what you do, look at what they do, and it's, it's just not going to pass the smell test, guys. Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I want your whole life. I want you to, to let go of this world. Let go of this grip that we've got and say, I'm done. I'm done being half in. I'm done. I'm done trying this thing with one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. Guys, this Christian life is not easy. He, he flat out promised in John 16, it's not going to be. There's going to be tribulation, right? But he's saying he, he wants to be your help. He wants to be this light to us so that we would know that we can cry out to him, so we could cry out for this help. Guys, I mean, when you look in, in this room right now, I mean, think about it. There is... There is broken and shattered and unfixable things going on in the lives of the men in this room. There is. There is deep hurt and bad decisions and massive regret and wrong roads and terrible choices and Christian life in this room. But what do we do? We cry out, right? I mean, it, Christians cry out, right? To be right with God is to be righteous, right? The righteous cry out, do they not? You know, Psalm 34 says, The righteous cry out, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near, it says, to those who have a broken heart. And he saves such that have a contrite spirit. As we cry out, we cry out to whom we're following. He hears. That's the promise, guys. He knows your hurt, your problems, your, your hang-ups, what you're afraid of, guys. This is why one of the most favorite questions that I have, that Jesus asked in the New Testament is, in, in John 5, 6, he says, do you want to be made well? Do you? Is that what you want? Guys, I do. I thank God. 
I mean, I can't wait, guys, to go to heaven. I can't wait for the pain to stop. I can't wait for the sin to stop, guys. But like the here and the now in this life, you know what I really want? I desperately want, guys, for the people that God brings into my life to believe that this undeniable miracle that he's done in me is real. That it's real. I want people to want what I've got. I want people to be infected like I am. To be 100% sold out to him. It's this this infectious stuff, guys, that, that I can't put a finger on. It reminds me, guys, Jeremiah and those that, that study him know this ministry that he had was just as insane. Jeremiah took some time to write down like a conversation that he had with God. Like past tense. And uh, in Jeremiah 20, he, he talked about how he kind of cried out. He says, Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and prevail. You basically told me, I'm going to paraphrase, he says, you basically told me to go tell the people the judgment is coming. We are talking a nightmare. It's going to be horrific. I'm unpopular. He says, everybody mocks me. I'm in derision daily. And he says, I've kind of decided, he writes now, I'm not going to make mention anymore of you. I'm not going to talk about you anymore. I'm going to hold this in. I don't want to, I'm not going to mention your name. He says, but your word, guys, get this. Your word was shut up, burning in my heart, stuck in my bones. It was, I was weary of holding it back because it is coming out. He was saying, how unpopular. This thing that you told me to speak, I'm, I'm going to suppress it. He says, I can't. God, you're stronger. This word that you have in me, it is coming out. I can't hold it back. I just can't. Coming out, he's saying, he's saying, it's Jeremiah's letting go. Jeremiah is letting go. He's saying, God, you win. He's saying, no matter the cost, I don't care about the mocking and the ridicule. I don't care about what this does to, to the life that you've given me. I will go where you send me, Lord, is what he's saying. I will follow. I will open my mouth. This is what it means to follow Jesus, guys. I kid you not. This is no punchline. I mean, not even, not even three weeks ago. I'm out work, and I hate advertising this, but but I'm, I'm a cop. I've been a cop for since 1998, and uh, over I think I think the call originated over in Eastern Idaho, and uh, maybe Burley. Anyway, so what happened? Family, they've done everything that they can to kind of locate someone that they know is is suicidal, and uh, and once they've exhausted all their efforts, they usually. They'll call that in. And so then it goes out to, I don't know, at least 100 different agencies, probably in a 500-mile radius. And so everybody's kind of like, amongst everything else that's going on that day, looking for, oh, yeah, this one vehicle. It's, it's truly a needle on a haystack. And so anyway, I come to work that day, and as is my habit, I, I asked God, I said, what, what will you have me do today? This is your day. Right? And so it just so happens that not even, honestly, not even looking for it, there it is. I just happened to find things going well. And uh, anyway, long story short, guys, find the vehicle, find the hotel room that he's in. And so going through the door, there's the gun, there's him, and there's his note. It's already written. Okay. Um, 
the odds of me getting there, we never get there. It is rare to get there prior to. It's just we're always late. It's the way it kind of works. And so, anyway, so I get it all sorted out, and I get up and pull up a chair because I want to talk to him. And uh, he, he's, everything about this scene, guys, is, is streams private. People don't invite people to scenes like this. And so all of a sudden now I'm in, and I'm in his personal space. And I'm, I'm a kind of in-your-face kind of guy. And so I pull up my chair, and I'm probably like, I don't know, 18 inches from him. And I, and I lean in, and I say, Carl. His name was Carl. I said, Carl, do you know why I'm here? And he's not sure if he's supposed to be defensive, like maybe the gig is not up, or it's, it's, it's his brain and his mouth are not on the same page, so he doesn't quite get an answer out to my question. And so I didn't wait too long for it. And so I'm asking, I said, Carl, do you, do you know why I'm here? And I said, God sent me. He doesn't want me to do that. That's all I did. Carl was done. He was done. He was sobbing. It was over for him. I had him exactly where I wanted him. To the point where I got to I got to share everything that I wanted to share with him. For the next half hour, I got to tell Carl everything about God that I wanted to tell him. I got to cry with Carl and I got to pray with Carl. It was a phenomenal day. Guys, my point is that all it was was opening my mouth. Guys, every single time that I do that, God's done that. I had to keep a journal because I've got probably two, three hundred Carls in there. I didn't want to forget them. This is what he does. Because I opened my mouth. That was it. That was it, guys. It's, it's no longer being afraid. It's the most amazing thing, honestly, to me, to watch Christians who love God, and the one thing that they're afraid of is what they might think. That has got to stop. And I want it to stop this weekend, tonight. Because I'm telling you, it's the one thing that absolutely paralyzes and hamstrings Christians from being true followers. It's just opening their mouth, guys. When, when Christians truly drink in what Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Guys, it's like this switch that like supernaturally goes off where I'm no longer afraid. I've got this excitement and this peace and this joy. And this, guys, this is just who I am. I can't control this, and I certainly can't hide it. can't hide it. Guys, I am not of this world. I don't represent that. I represent him. That's it. That is it. Guys, and so this, this, this infectious compulsion that, that Jeremiah no doubt talked about, he says, I, I can't hold it back. It's coming out. It's coming out. God, you're, you win. He says you're strong. Flat says you're stronger. This compulsion. I think there's like parallel passages, guys, from, from Jeremiah 20. To what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, for the love of Christ compels us. There is a compulsion. The love of Christ. When you see truly what he did on the cross and what that meant 
the love for that compels us. It compels us. This most phenomenal, like, most concise gospel message in its entirety in that one sentence, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, I think it starts in 14, it says, for the love of Christ compels us. For we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That we who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So you don't you don't get to live for you no more. Christian, you don't you don't have that luxury anymore. It's not about you, right? It's him. Guys, we live for him. He is my vocation. This is what I do. Following him is what we do. It is our it is our absolute job, guys. I kid you not, I am unrecognizable. Unrecognizable from nine years ago. Where God found me. And he has systematically turned me into a witness. That's what we're supposed to do. Acts 1, 4, and 5, right? To be a witness, guys. To witness. What does a witness do? Testifies. You know what a witness testifies about? A witness testifies what he's seen, what he's heard, and what he knows. That's what a witness does. And so here comes kind of the difficult part. Maybe you're saying, well, yeah, I want that. I want I want to be that kind of witness. I, I look at Christians and I go, man, I want that. I, I see where they're at. I just, I don't know how to get there from here. And so I, I struggle with this, guys. I struggle with this question about how best to answer what that means as far as following and being that witness. Guys, honestly, when, when, when you look at the Christian pillars in your life, whoever they are, you look at Jackie and Jason and you're like, these guys, they, they, they give everything that they have and, and they're, they're, the compassion, the diligence in the, in the Endurance and all, all these things are just so brimming with, with, with God's love. And they always have like that perfect scripture to give you. And that perfect application. Guys, it's not because they get to spend more time with God behind the veil than you do because they were just they were, they were given more spiritual talent than you. No, guys, I'm telling you right now, it's because they live in this book. That's it. This book is coming out in them. That's what happens. That's as simple as it is. I mean, that is as simple as it gets, guys. This is what they're drinking in. This is how they follow Jesus so closely on his heels is because they have made his word their home. It's an amazing thing. I, I started thinking, I'm like, so here's the question. What does the human heart that follows God sound like? What does it sound like? I think I know. It sounds like Psalm 119. And for those of you that know what Psalm 119 is all about, you know what I mean. That is what a heart that is so in love with God sounds like. We're talking like a hundred and seven. It's the biggest sound. 176 verses of I love nothing more. 
It's an amazing thing, guys. Let me. I want to read just a few of them. This is Psalm 119.10. to give you a taste. With my whole heart, God, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I cling to your testimonies. Oh, Lord, do not put me to shame. Incline my heart to your testimonies, not to covetousness. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. Your testimonies, verse 24, your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. Verse 50 says, this is, get this guys, this is my comfort in my affliction and your word gives me life. Can you hear that? It is God. It is your word. The psalmist says over and over and over saying, there's no other place that I want to live. You have everything that I possibly need. It's your word. This is what I follow. This is what I love, guys. This is where I found I find counsel. This is where my whole heart is. This is because you are my delight. My delight. Maybe you're like, you know, Brian. It's it's pretty damn hard to delight myself in the very God who has the power to fix my marriage, and he just hasn't. To, to, to get my kids off drugs, to bring my wife back, to, to heal this disease, to, to, to get this person saved, to, to help me in this massive trial. It's pretty damn hard. Maybe, is it, I don't know, is that your heart? Guys, where you, you've you're waiting on him to move. Maybe you're waiting on him to move, to, to, to tear enough, seemingly, to, to look down on, on what you've got going on. And he hasn't. And maybe your, your patience is just done. And now resentment and anger kind of move in because he hasn't moved. He hasn't fixed anything. He seems like he's a million miles away. He's just from afar looking indifferent, uncaring. And so your heart, all of a sudden, is that where it's at? I mean, is this what keeping you from following him where, where you're kind of guarded up and you're holding back because the situation's jacked up. As a matter of fact, maybe it's getting worse. It's not fixed. Guys, do you realize that every single person in this room has got a major trial going on that's got some huge thing that's not fixed? It's an amazing thing, guys. Uh, this weekend, this will happen over and over and over where men in conversations and fellowships, they'll say, oh, you have no idea what I'm going through. We just do that, right? Like, like you can't possibly understand the circumstances that I'm going through. They're, just, they're, they're beyond you, right? We all think that, like, this is a big poker match, right? And everybody's got the ace of spades up their sleeve, like, on the most massive trial there possibly is. I don't know why we do that. But we do. We do. I mean, honestly, guys, let's... Let's be real about this. For example, Pastor Jackie, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that he's probably the only one in the room who right now is currently raising up an autistic son. Can you even imagine? Day in, day out, crying out to God for direction and guidance on how to be the father to Joe that Joe needs him to be. 
all the while, guys, dedicating his entire life to God's word and pouring into scripture, which in it says over and over and over about miracles, about miracles and miracles of healings, guys, where the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. And minds are made right. And people made whole. I, I can't even imagine the hundreds of hours of prayer and tears and brokenness and saying, God, why not heal my son? Why? You can fix him. That's nothing. You can, you can free him of this. And yet, status is unchanged. Situation is not fixed. Or check this out, guys. Many of you know my wife, Sue. Married just shy of 17 years. She is barren. Can't have kids. And I know that there's at least one person in this room who can possibly fathom the unending depths of the pain that is attached to that. She is desperate, guys, to provide me with a son. She can't. And the enemy just cripples her with doubt. And her thinking that I've wasted my life on a woman who's broken. And so am I. Because she thinks she's broken. So I'm, I'm crying out to God, God, I don't know why you would hold this back, this blessing from me. Like my, I'm totally surrendered to you. Why, why would you do that? I read over and over in the scriptures all these women from Old Testament to New that were once barren that he touched, he found favor, compassion, and boom, there it happened. They had kids. I mean, you think about it, guys, from Sarah to Rebecca to Rachel to Hannah. Every one of them crying out to God. You know what it says in there? In each one of those? It says, God remembered her. God remembered her. You know what Sue's prayer is? That God would remember her. She doesn't want to think that she's forgotten. I'm talking years of prayer. I'm talking brutal emptiness and phenomenal hurt. And yet, status unchanged. Situation is not fixed. Get this, guys. In 05, broke my back going down on flight stairs. Ultimately, it was the very thing that God did to get my attention. He had been chasing after me for a long time. Obviously, massive pain, the whole nine yards. Five years later, I get smashed up in, um, I got T-bone on the highway. Huge impact. Totally should have died. Absolutely, at the very least, should have lost my left leg. God absolutely delivered me. I didn't even walk out with blood. Everyone knows, car told, whole nine yards. Um, but what did happen is the discs that were already bad are just further messed up. Anyway, grew my teeth for 18 months. Finally had surgery in 2012. Got a second surgery coming. Pain is absolutely relentless. Just won't stop. Every minute of the day, as I stand here before you now, toss and turn three hours of sleep, maybe a night on hours for years. Here's the point, guys, is that this right here, this book, my relationship with God, I don't love anything else. I just don't. And so to do this, guys, to prepare for this and to do everything that I do as far as personal study, I've got to sit down. And that is the absolute... It wrecks me. 
And so I have this conversation with God and say, God, I, this is for your glory. How, how about a healing touch to make the pain go away just for today? Lots of prayer. And yet, status is unchanged. Situation is not fixed. Guys, here's my point. Whatever aches that you think that you're holding up your sleeve, whatever it is that, that is causing you to kind of pause on holding back on, on if God moving your way or not, and whether you're going to follow after Him, it's got to stop. There is no quid pro quo with Him, guys. There's no something for something here, guys. When I was thinking about this, I'm thinking about Daniel's three friends. Those three guys, back in Daniel 3, they knew that what they were about to do when they stood for God, when everybody else bowed down, was going to be a death sentence. Right? Absolutely. As soon as they did it, boom, of course they're going to get knocked off. Next thing you know, they're in front of the king, right? And they're answering for it. They already know that... This was their last day. They already know that they've already kissed their families. They already know that they ate their last meals. It's over. They're not walking away from this, right? It's done. And so the king, what does he do? He says, he actually gives them a way out, didn't he? And they said, no, no, we, we, we're, we don't even need to bother with that. We're not going to bow down. And they said an interesting thing there, guys. They said, our God is able to deliver us from your hand, O king, right? They're like, yeah, we know God. This is, this is nothing for him, right? This is absolutely nothing for him. He can do that no different than he can fix my back, he can make my wife pregnant, and he can heal Joe. Like that. They said, our God is able to deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we're not going to bow down. Guys, what they're saying is they're, they're either way. They're like, God, we're good. We're going left or we're going right. we got no dog in the fight. We follow you. We trust you. We are all in behind you, is what they're saying. Are you there yet? Are you there yet, guys? Where you're like, you know what? My following him is not contingent on him fixing any sort of problem that he knows that I have. It just isn't. Guys, our love for him, our worship for him, our loyalty to him, our following him is not contingent on anything. He's done it all, guys. So it's either way. It's God, I will follow you. Even when it hurts. Even when it's unfair. I will follow you, Jesus, no matter what. It's either way. And guys, for me, that means if I got 30 more years of back pain, I'll follow him. If I gotta, if I never get to know what it's like to be a dad, if I gotta dry my wife's tears and try to comfort an inconsolable hurt until he comes back, I don't care because I'm either way. God, I follow you. It is your will, not my own. Where else am I gonna go? Guys, are you there yet? Either way. Because it's it's your choice. It's a choice you make. Guys, it's a choice you make to delight yourself in him without equivocation. No matter what. 
It's choosing to follow him rather than the, everything that the world has got to offer. Guys, make no mistake. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, says it's either the world or me. You can't have both. Jesus can. Because I don't know what you're expecting this weekend. But right here, right now, God is expecting a decision to be made from you, from everybody. Right? You're going to follow Him either way. Are you going to consecrate yourselves? Okay. To, to consecrate yourselves. Guys, if, if you were going to be a priest in the Old Testament, what you would do is they had a, they had a ritual called consecration. And what they would do is they would, they would take an animal and, and sacrifice it. And they would take the blood of that animal and apply it to your, your right ear, your right thumb, and your right big toe. And what it was, guys, was a, was a symbol that basically says everything that you put your ear to, everything that you put your hand to, and everything that you, everywhere you went on your feet was under the blood of that sacrifice. And so that they would forever know and never forget that being a priest for God, it came at a price. Something innocent had to die. It cost blood. It cost blood. And so in the New Testament, you know what it says? It says those who follow Jesus, it says in Revelation 1, 6, Jesus says that he's washed us, our sins, in his own blood, making us kings and priests. That's phenomenal. So listen, guys, we have that that same opportunity every day to say, you know what? My hands, my feet, my ears, everything that I put forth, everything that I do in this day, it came at a price. Jesus bled out at Calvary for me. And so I will follow him with everything that I've got from here on out. I'm making a stand. This is, this is what he's wanting you to do is to let go, set up camp in his word, guys. Laying down whatever sin whatever distraction, whatever excuse that you have. Guys, these, these four words I've wrestled with for maybe two weeks now. And it's follow me either way. Those four words. I want to read you one last passage real quick. I'm going to kick that out of faith. This is out of Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah says, Blessed is the man, this is verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord, for he shall be a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when he comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will cease from yielding fruit. There's no worries. There's no anxiousness. There's no fearing when he comes. Guys, trials are going to come. There's no fear in here, right? Guys, this tree that Jeremiah's talking about, that is growing, and it's mature, and it's strong, it's massive, right? And it's got roots deep down, right? Drinking in everything that it can, right? That tree is supposed to be used. Roots deep down, tapped into the very source that you need. 
Guys, there's no two ways about it. Being a student of God, it's going to take discipline. It's just flat out is. It takes serious discipline, guys. I mean, massive diligence. Massive diligence. Paul tells Timothy, he says, be diligent. Right? He says, be diligent. Present yourselves approved to God. Not being ashamed. No, you're rightly dividing the word of truth. This is your job. This is, our, this is what we do. This is just who I am. It's roots deep down. It's roots deep down. It's taking a stand in your life and saying, you know what? Today's the day. I will follow you. And it's going to be either way. And it's not contingent on anything. And I, I'm, I am all in as of right now. I'm 100%. I'm, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be the real thing. Amen? Amen. Stand. Let's pray with me. Father God, I come before you.